Deepest Thoughts is the show that you listen in to know what's What's going going on in sports today today and hear what Chris and Anshu say. The Deepest Thoughts podcast is brought to you by DeepestThoughts.com. Host Chris Horwadell and Anshu Khanna discuss today's biggest news from the world of sports and whatever else is on their minds. Deepest Thoughts is the show that you listen in to know what's going on in sports today and hear what Chris and Anshu say. Welcome to the Deepest Thoughts Podcast, episode number seven. I'm Chris Forwardell, joined by Anshu Khanna. Anshu, we had some breaking news just earlier today, and that would be the Bills firing Rex Ryan, firing Rob Ryan, and promoting Anthony Lynn as their new head coach. Are you at all surprised that they made this decision with one game left in the regular season? Nah, I mean, after the game, it sure seemed like Rex Ryan was sort of uh, resigned to his fate, that he was yeah. out of town, so... Um, you know, might as well cut your losses now. And I'm not sure that Anthony wins any sort of answer for them. Although he had a brief spell of positivity there early in the season when he became the offensive coordinator. But, um, you know, I'm totally fine with cutting your losses there. And by firing both Rex and Rob, I think you, you, uh, you make sure that there are no lingering and no loose ends there, um, going into next season. So it makes sense. And how about the roller coaster ride of the season Anthony Lynn's had? He came over to the team as a running backs coach, gets promoted to offensive coordinator after they fire Greg Roman week three. He finishes the season as head coach. Yeah, not, not a bad set of circumstances for Anthony Lynn. And if nothing else, he gets a week to uh, to try his hand at running the full show, which is a good experience for him. So, um, But, you know, I, I don't think anyone has any – illusions that he's going to be their next head coach I I think that would be a a huge mistake Mm -hmm. Um, and he's not going to have the quarterback that he helped build up early in the season in Tyrod Taylor starting either so seems like it's just a a total experiment and maybe a reward for his hard work over the course of the year but um, I imagine they have their eyes set on um, bigger fish I would guess well that was my next question Mr. Kana who do you think those bigger fish are could this be a like a Kyle Shanahan? Could this be a Josh McDaniels? I mean, do you, do you really want to go with Josh McDaniels after Rex Ryan, though? I don't know if that's great. Uh, is, could, this be a, could this be a Tom Coughlin landing spot? Yeah, so Tom Coughlin's name seems to be mentioned, and he's familiar with the area, obviously. I mean, it's not like college where you're recruiting or anything, but mm. probably still lives around there, is my guess, since he works somewhat closely with the Giants, at least allegedly. And, um yeah, I, I agree that Josh McDaniels would be kind of a strange fit as far as a similar type of bigger personality. At least that's what it seemed he was like when he was a head coach in Denver. Um, you know, those are the, the usual suspects. Uh, I think, you know, I think, first of all, I would never go back to the Coughlin well. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of crazy that any team would be willing to do that right now. He's he's so old, and, and it's just, uh, you know what you're going to get out of Tom Coughlin. And I get if you're trying to re-implement a sense of professionalism if you think you've lost it somewhere along the way but you know what say whatever you want about Rex Ryan but he he runs a a professional ship I would say he's done this for a long time so it's you're still a normal kind of NFL franchise it's not like the Bears (laughs) and Mark Trustman or something like that um so uh, to me I I think Kyle Shanahan makes some sense I could see them you know they, they haven't really hesitated to try different types of things like you know, Doug Marone was kind of a, a really random choice, yeah. it seems like, at the time. And so I wouldn't rule out the possibility of someone that seems to be out of the norm as a, as a hire. Um, but with Doug Whalen, it sounds like Whalen is going to be there helping make this choice. So it wouldn't surprise me if it was a more veteran name either, just because he needs a winning season or he, he could be on the chopping block again after next year if things don't go well. Well, doesn't that push them towards someone like Coughlin? You talked about, you know, going down the Coughlin well again, and one thing you said was that you know what you're going to get, and that's true. You do know what you're going to get with Tom Coughlin, and that is a guy who tends to do very well for the first season and a half before his team starts to hate him. Yeah, that's that's very, very true. So maybe I'm, uh, I spoke too soon on that. Coughlin might be the kind of guy, and allegedly there, there have been reports linking that job to him. And uh, so maybe that does make sense, actually. You know, I mean, it, 
Kyle Shanahan too, and and Kyle Shanahan's dad is possibly an option. I would think if you're talking about running a professional ship, Mm -hmm. um, someone that's been away from the game for a couple of years, but Mike Shanahan, I think would be a a potential option. Just if you're, if you're going to go down that veteran road, that that makes some sense. um, If they are immediately looking to win the question to me though, then is do you have your quarterback and, um, or do you trust the coach to, to bring along EJ Manuel, I guess, and Tyrod Taylor mm-hmm. and, or whoever they draft. I, I'm, I'm not really sure about that. Let me ask you if, if you did go with a guy like Coughlin, do you think you could sell it that Coughlin's going to be here for two years and then get a high quality young assistant who is going to be the, the heir apparent, a guy like a guy like a Trell Austin or maybe a Matt Patricia or even going down further, one of the guys from Kansas City, either uh, the special teams kid who they like, Stoop or Shoop, or, or the, the call offensive coordinator, Matt Nagy, mm-hmm. could, could you get one of those guys to come in knowing that in two years this is your job? Yeah, it, it's a really interesting thought, but I don't think we've ever really seen that. And certainly not in professional sports. We've heard of coaches – being groomed at the college level, particularly college basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to imagine because of the way that the NFL is, you're not guaranteed next week, let alone That's two true. years from now. You know, um, Marvin Jones, for a time, it was alleged that Hugh Jackson was promised that he was going to get Marvin Jones' job after three years. And now, look, Marvin Jones could be forced into retirement this year. Um, had he stayed and not taken that Cleveland job, you know, maybe he'd be. Maybe he would be the next guy, but maybe not. I mean, maybe someone cuts bait with everybody from a staff. So it'd be tough for me if I'm Matt Patricia or someone else that's, you know, a really highly touted assistant or someone clearly on the head coaching track to leave where they are and, and join Coughlin with the promise or assurance that he'd likely be the replacement in a year or two. Um, but it's an interesting thought for sure. And uh, I think that you know, you, like Lovey Smith brought on Dirk Cutter, and in some ways it ended up undermining Lovey. You know, yeah. and so I think that for Coughlin, if he's feeling reinvigorated and his team is is doing well, then there's a chance that he would feel undermined by his own promise or or whatever the case may be. Things change so quickly; it's just such a hard thing to promise something like that to uh, to an assistant. I see what you're saying, but there's also a definite appeal to it. You know, an interesting analogy. Uh, in terms of being the lead assistant under Tom Coughlin would be, you know, I've been saying since, I don't, you know, we don't get too political on the show for a good reason, but especially since I'm largely an idiot, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I've been saying since all of the rumors have come out that there's never going to be a more coveted vice president spot than there will be four years from now if Joe Biden's running for president. Because you're going to talk, you're talking yeah. about a guy who's going to be what seventy six or something like seventy seven when he, if he would take office in four years. Mm-hmm. There's a very good that, chance that the vice president will, at some point during that term, assume the role of president. Yeah, that's definitely true. I, it's a very interesting analogy. I don't know that. I'm not saying Coughlin's going to die. But. Yeah, you're not getting a four year term with uh, with Coughlin, but it is sort of interesting that you bring the the coach and his heir apparent. I mean, I think that was part of what drew the the Washington football franchise to Mike Shanahan, because mm-hmm. at the time, Kyle Shanahan, and this was years ago, even then Kyle Shanahan was sort of a hot prospect. I mean, that was a main reason why the bears hired John Fox to know that they got Vic Fangio and Adam Gase yeah. um, and this all-star staff. I think that that, I, and I know it's a little bit different because John Fox isn't whatever Tom Coughlin is as far as age, but you know, the idea that you're able to assemble a full staff and then potentially could see yourself making that switch from the head coach to one of your professional level coordinators. Um, it's definitely something that would intrigue me. And it's something that you, you, I would think you'd keep in the back of your mind, but it's hard to imagine mm-hmm. drawing out a very specific and a handshake agreed upon path, sure. but it's, it's fascinating for sure. I, and if you're the Bills, I think you're doing all you can to build out a full offense and defensive staff rather than, um, you know, with Rex Ryan and with some of their other coaches, I would say that 
there was an emphasis on one, and not just the Bills, a lot of teams are guilty of this, but emphasizing one side of the ball versus the other mm-hmm. and not an, and not creating an atmosphere of, of a full squad um, is, it's definitely, it's something that a lot of teams mess up. And so I, making sure that you have that full staff in place is so important. And so that whoever they hire next should make sure to be able to do that. And by the way, the Bears got the right guy, just in the wrong position, because Adam Gase is an absolute rock star of a head coach. Yeah, seems to be the perfect temperament right now. Um, and I, I've always thought that Vic Fangio has been sort of flown under the radar. His defenses have been really good. The Bears mm-hmm. have been just destroyed by wrecked by injury. That roster has been awesome. Yeah, just destroyed. And but you know they've they've come to every game. They've played every game pretty hard. They've that defense is performing way above what it should, and and, and they've not been great. But that's still pretty impressive. And then obviously you saw what he did with Jim Harbaugh when they were in uh, in San Francisco. So mm-hmm. uh, so it's not just Gates. It's building out that full on uh, corporation. You know, as far as coaches go, and having the right executive board or cabinet or whatever the case may be. Um, so that's that's uh, I think that's the trouble with hiring a young head coach, um, and then especially when you're talking about a potential lame duck GM. Maybe I go back and say if you can get Coughlin and somebody else, uh, one of his connections, that's ready to maybe step into a head coaching role sooner rather than later. You you do that. And along with this, the Bills announced that they're going to bench Tyrod Taylor for the final game of the season. You know, there's likely. Uh, we'll be moving on from Taylor after the season. They don't want to be on the hook for that $30 million he'll be owed should he get injured. This is very similar to what was going on early in the season with the 49ers and Colin Kaepernick. Are you at all surprised by this? Because you know Taylor, while he's not a, a superstar and you know the team hasn't been spectacularly productive in terms of wins and losses with him playing, Taylor's, Taylor's a decent starting quarterback. Yeah, he's fine. I just, I just don't understand why they're starting EJ Manuel. I mean, I get that he's a first round pick. I get that the front office wants to see what they have or whatever again. And they seemingly have pushed for EJ Manuel since the, since the Rex Ryan era began began. Yeah. And I, you know, I just I, stop trying to make EJ Manuel happen. You yeah. Know what I mean? yes. Like it's just, we know what we get it. Like he's not going to give you anything. And I'm not saying that, Tyrod Taylor is going to necessarily show you anything in week 17, but at least for the sake of continuity, or maybe you bring him back, or at least maybe he's a trade chip if you sign him to some sort of extension and, you know, that helps buoy his trade value. I don't know, but whatever the case may be, I don't see any upside to starting EJ Manuel this week. Well, I understand it from the perspective of not wanting to be on the hook for, uh, for Taylor, but, and this is going to show my ignorance. Who was the other quarterback on the roster right now, they have uh, it's Cardell Jones. Cardell Jones, yeah. So start Cardell Jones if anything. <laughs> I'd be fine with that. I don't see. I just don't see any upside to starting EJ Manuel. Hell, I mean, you also. I mean, I know this isn't the direction they want to go, but you also have Logan Thomas on the roster as a, as a tight end, so you can give mm-hmm. Logan Thomas a start. We, we, you're exactly right. We know what EJ Manuel is at this point. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think there was a source that said that specifically said they knew who EJ Manuel is. And that was, but Tardell just wasn't ready or something. I think that's what I read. What Um, does ready mean in the NFL anymore? I mean, I, yeah, who knows? Like I, what, what's at risk? What, what do you have to lose? Like does Tardell go in and is he so shaken with whatever his performance is that he's just never going to be good again. Is it possible to be like that for a kid like, like Cardell Jones? Yeah, because Cardell Jones is not a guy with a track record of succeeding despite not being ready. Right. Exactly. Of all the people, I, I, you know, at least give the fans something to watch. And, and frankly, you should be trying to lose this game anyway, or giving your team a chance to lose. And so I don't know. Maybe you see something, though, in Cardell Jones. I, but there's nothing that E.J. Manuel can do in this game. Even if he throws for 400 yards and mm. four touchdowns and no interceptions, there's nothing that he can do in this scenario that would make me – would help inform any offseason decisions in any way for me if I'm the Bills. I agree with what you're saying in terms of trying to lose this game. And I think it's interesting because we saw something kind of fascinating happen this past weekend – where the Cleveland Browns gave the 49ers this giant Christmas present 
by beating the Chargers. The, the, oh, 40, the 49ers are elevated to the number one pick in the draft. Granted, in a year where you don't have that clear-cut number one pick in the draft, but still, you want the number one oh. pick if you're a bad team. Okay, so maybe you think it's Miles Garrett, but there's no clear-cut quarterback. Um, mm. And and then the 49ers come back. I actually I was watching this 49ers Rams game, and I turned it off. Oh, I turned sorry. it off uh, 21 to seven, and with like I don't know 12 minutes left in the fourth quarter, something like that. I figured the game was over. I was rooting for the the Rams win or the 49ers win, and uh, I looked at I don't know I, I looked at some sports news outlet later on in the day, so only to find out the 49ers came back to win. Chipper went for a gutsy two point call. And uh, they actually converted, destroying their chance at the number one pick in the draft. Now, granted, this weekend is going to be very interesting because the 49ers play a Seahawks team that does still theoretically have something to play for and may not be resting Wilson and the gang, whereas the 49ers play a Steelers team that would be foolish to play any starting caliber player, uh, given where they are in the, the playoff hunt right now. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, the Browns. Yeah. Um, so the Browns could give that number one pick right back to the 49ers. That's true. Uh, it, it is really – we talked about this a little bit last week, and I feel like it's sort of a recurring theme throughout all our shows. But yeah. the idea of tanking versus not tanking and football being a sport that makes it very difficult to not try. Yeah. So the only thing you can really do as a front office is put your team into position – so maybe that's what the Bills are doing, actually, with E.J. Manuel. Like, they know <laughs> that Manuel gives them the worst chance of winning between those two, and they don't want to absolutely kill Cardell, so they're just saying we're going to bench Tyrod. I don't know. I mean, obviously the injury risk, too. But anyways, yes, I, I mean, it's so it was just so poetic that uh, the Browns finally win a game and they potentially would lose their number one, and that would cause them to lose a number one pick after being mocked all season roundly. Um but, you know, I think it's fair. They probably should have the number one pick. And it's just I, – I don't think it's that difficult to reconcile trying to tank with trying to get better and trying yeah. to get close to the chance to get winning a championship. I mean, I get it. It's face. It's tough. But you can develop your play. I mean, you're – you know it better than anyone with the Sixers. But, like, you know, it's, it's, it's totally fair to try to get better while not necessarily wanting to – or doing the things to – necessary to win games. I mean, there's only 16 of them. You can easily to tank these 16 and, and feel okay about where you're at. So, yeah, it's actually it's a, it's just an interesting theory. Yeah. And it's just kind of, kind of interesting to think about what happens if, sorry, I'm getting ESPN updates right now. If uh, the 49ers do end up with that number one pick now, is this, is this chip finally taking his quarterback? And isn't that, doesn't he sort of have to, isn't that the only reason that he's still around is that he never got the chance to get his guy at quarterback. Do they go Deshaun Watson at number one? Or, I mean, you kind of, you kind of uh, scoffed a little bit when I said there was no clear cut number one player in the draft. Do you, do you think it's Garrett? Do you, is it Jonathan Allen? Uh, What do you think? No, I, no, I, I I agree with you. I think that it's, first of all, I think it's Garrett, but I agreed. I, I mean, you want the number one pick no matter what. You always want that chance to to not leave it to anybody else but yourself as to who you get. Mm-hmm. So um, I get wanting to win a game and not being 0-16, but you want you want the number one pick no matter what. I mean, you want you don't want to leave your fate at anybody else's hands but your own. So uh, getting that number one pick, I know I'm not exactly sure what the rules are as far as if they have a tied record um, Strength in the schedule. second round. Oh, so right. But in the second round, don't they flip? They do like, yeah. So, you know, you wouldn't have the number one or a higher pick across the board, but uh, you know, you're not really concerned about the slot of the pick being paid. It's not a huge difference between number one and number two. And it's not like it's going to change the, uh, the negotiations of your contract with your high pick. So really there's no downside to getting the number one pick versus the number two. And so, you know, you might as well get it and not let the Niners be the team that gets it, especially for trade purposes, if that's what you go to do. And the Browns seemed very willing to do that last year. So pretty interesting theory, but yeah, I mean, you want the number one pick regardless of who's in the draft. What do you do if you're Chip Kelly and you have the number one pick in the draft? Who are you taking? Ooh, wow. That's, (laughs) That's tough. I mean, it, it kind of depends if you're Chip Kelly. First of all, is Chip Kelly the one making the decision? I think so. I think he gets one okay. more year. So then, if you're Chip Kelly, do you know for a fact you're staying for a, 
however long, unless you just totally tank it. I'm guessing you want your quarterback and don't want to leave it to chance. So at that point, assuming that you don't like uh, like a Mason Rudolph or someone you can get in the second round more, then, yeah, I mean, then you, you take whoever you want. I mean, for me, I wouldn't take Watson or Kaiser or Trubisky at number one, but hmm. I could see where if you're Chip Kelly, you want the guy with the ball in his hands to be someone you're developing rather than a defensive guy that you're leaving to your defensive staff. Also, you know, taking that rookie quarterback – that also gives you the chance of buying you another year. True. Very true. And that's why I, that's why I asked that first question, because if Chip Kelly is on a short leash for next year, then it's hard to imagine the front office allowing Chip to be the one to make that pick, you know, cause now you're stuck with Deshaun Watson for three years or yeah, whoever. Jared, and, a Jared Goff for around. four years. Exactly. I mean, exactly. And, I don't know. And especially with Chip Kelly, who runs that sort of gimmicky, more gimmicky offense or nuanced offense that, that fits what he wants to do. You can see a lot of coaches in the NFL saying, I don't know if this is the guy that I want to lead my organization. I don't know if this job is the one that I want to get stuck with yeah. long term if I'm stuck with a guy like, you know, a, I don't know, like a Kaiser or someone that maybe Chip sees something different than, than other coaches. Well, that's the problem, too, with having Chip Kelly as your head coach, is that eventually, when everything goes wrong, you have to deal with having the players Chip Kelly wanted. Right. You're seeing that firsthand. Absolutely. It's right? terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's a, a complete overhaul. And so, and that's why I say I don't know that – I first of all, I don't know if I would let Chip Kelly make that decision. I mean, you obviously have to let him be a part of it, unless you're fully committed to the Chip Kelly experience for three years. Yeah. which I don't think you can be. I don't think you I don't think you can be this year. But it's also it's worth pointing out that the 49ers are a team that has had a rash of injuries. So even if uh you know you take Deshaun Watson with the number 1 pick in the draft and you do what normal teams do with, when they take someone with the number 1 overall pick in the draft and let him play next season. <laughs> you know, so this is a Side team swipe at the Rams. No, it was a direct swipe at the Rams. Uh <laughs> So this is a team that won two games this year, three games this year, whatever. If you are, you know, just natural regression to the mean is going to, you know, with the defense they have is going to put them at six or seven wins next year, I would think. Cool. I don't know about that. You don't, I mean, that's a good defense. It's, it's okay. Let's not go crazy. All right, fine. Let's say five or six wins. Okay. Isn't that still, doesn't that still seem like a step up, even if it's an artificial step up? It does compared to right now when you think about the Niners, but I don't think next year you're like, oh man, they doubled their win total. You know what I mean? <laughs> like in the, you're you're in the middle of a five and eleven season. You're Gus Bradley. You just got fired in week fourteen of a season. You know, like I mean that's I I think that uh, and especially when you're someone like Chip Kelly who rubs people the wrong way that's and true. is already seemingly on a thin leash and there's always rumors about him leaving. I mean. It's such a. It is a unique situation because of all those reasons. But it's even generally speaking, it's hard to imagine. I I can't imagine someone looking at that team and being like, "Oh, but they were a really good five and eleven. You know. But but five and eleven with a rookie quarterback is not you know five and eleven with a third or fourth year Blake Bortles. No, I agree, and you're right. Like, look at the Titans with Mariota last year. I mean. They were what four and twelve, I think, or yeah. three and thirteen. They weren't great, um, but you felt good about that direction, even though, regardless of the coach, who I, you know, Malarkey, whatever, didn't wasn't an inspired hire in my opinion. But they've obviously been a lot better. Um, I just don't think. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. If they have Deshaun Watson and they win four or five games and Watson shows flashes, then yeah, then Chip Kelly's got a new lease on life there, I guess. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, you think there's right. a, you think there's so any chance Balky could be the one who's fired? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think and him and uh, Pragmarte, I think is how you pronounce his last name. I think there's that whole front office is they've they've run their course. Honestly, I mean, I mm-hmm. I think they're they're well respected across the league and especially in analytics communities. But man, those guys they've and maybe it's an injury thing. I mean, again, you said like you said this year they've they've struggled with injuries. That's been a a force of habit for that franchise for the last few years. But 
you know, at what point do you just say, look, your your results just don't show or merit that you should still be here? Yeah. Well, I mean, Balky won the his own individual battle against Jim Harbaugh a couple of years ago, and because of that, the 49ers lost. Yeah. No, you're right. You're definitely right about that. And, I mean, and they've had so many issues with Kaepernick, which don't bode well for the front office either. And it's it's um, it's a it's a very interesting spot, that team right there and what they do. And, and especially if they have a number two pick, if they decide to take a quarterback to go back to your original point, if that means that that whole front office and head coaching and everything, they all get another extra year and get to see it through through 2019. Yeah. So we had a, a weekend with – just an, an inordinate, inordinate, words are hard, inordinate amount of injuries to big-time quarterbacks. And we'll, we'll, ignore, oh. we'll ignore Marcus Mariota for a second and just talk about Derek Carr because Carr's injury just throws the AFC playoffs completely off. This is, I mean, there is, you know, aside from the fact that they may play each other in the, in the semifinal round, there is no reason that... Uh, we're not set up for Ben Roethlisberger and Tom Brady to face each other for, for the AFC because some of the other quarterbacks starting for AFC teams in the playoffs will be the likes of Tom Savage, Matt McGloin, and Matt Moore. And Alex Smith. Yeah, he's the best of the group. He's the clear-cut yeah, number the, three. I mean, that, yeah. It is really sad, and I, I think it's unprecedented. I cannot think of another time where a quarterback went down in the midst of such a huge, uh, you know, yeah. of such a contending team this late in the year. I, it's, it's a real shame um, because I think we were all looking forward to two games of pitting, you know, Pittsburgh and Oakland and, uh, and New England against each other. And the AFC was looking like a really interesting scenario without Gronk being around. And so it's, it's a shame and it just kind of clears the way to the Patriots and Steelers, as you said. So, um, that should still be a really good one, but it, it was going to be fun to see the, the Raiders try to kind of take that step. You know, that's always a fun time when that that quarterback, that young quarterback, has their first chance at the playoffs. I think we'll, we'll obviously have to be waiting another year. Is it going to be fun? Because I feel like we've seen this before. How many times do we have to watch Ben Roethlisberger and Tom Brady play for the right to go to the Super Bowl? You know, Derek, Derek Carr and the Raiders were the wild card. They were the guys who could score 55 points on anybody in any given week and go on this hot run and get to the Super Bowl. I, what's, I would say there's a, what, 85% chance we're going to see the Patriots in the Super Bowl now, and I feel like we've seen that before. Yeah, I, you know, probably. I, I think the Steelers can do what you just said, though. What, this Steelers team is different than other ones to me just because they can – put up tons and tons of points. I don't think last year's team was like this year's team for the simple fact that Roethlisberger seems to be much closer to a hundred percent than he was last year. And they all seem to be pretty healthy and they get this week to have a, essentially a buy in week 17 since they're locked in at their slot. And so I think it'll be more interesting and, but yeah, you're right. It's probably relative. I mean, it's, it's not as cool as it would have been if Derek Carr was in there to throw a wrench and everything. And even the chiefs, to a certain extent, I think Chiefs Raiders would have been a really fun yeah. second round match potentially. Um, and I, uh, yeah, it, it is a shame because you just assume that those will have an interesting wild card round because they're all similarly mediocre, mm-hmm. and then you'll, and then you'll get, uh, you know, the teams will separate, the cream will rise to the the top, and we'll see Patriots Steelers, and the winner of that game will go. So yeah, we're we're probably destined for another Patriots AFC title, but. Uh, you know, sometimes it's fun to see a bunch of underdogs take their shots at the top team. All right, I'm going to ask you this. Tom Savage, Matt McGloin, Matt Moore. <laughs> which one of those three quarterbacks has the best shot of getting hot and carrying his team? Wow. Tom Savage, Matt McGloin, Matt Moore. Um, boy. <laughs> well, I think you've got to look at the team that's going to have the home. I think you've got to eliminate Matt Moore because he's not going to be playing at home at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I would say Matt McGloin because of the two receivers <laughs> that they have. Yeah, I know, I know. And you're, I know you know Penn State relatively well, so it's a big leap. But I think it's probably, it's probably Matt McGloin because of Crabtree and Amari Cooper. And I know that, you know, that Savage has uh, DeAndre Hopkins and mm-hmm. Will Fuller, and, or not Will Fuller, or no, yes, Will Fuller, not Braxton Miller. Uh, 
But it's just, oh, man, <laughs> it's such a shame. I think I got to say Matt McGloin. What do you think? I, I know. I think we know what Matt McGloin is. I see where you're coming from because you do have Cooper and Crabtree and all of those. That just incredible Oakland offense. I don't, I Great don't know. offensive line, The too. thing is, 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 do you take the devil you know or do you just gamble? Because I think we yeah, know yeah. what Matt McGloin is. Matt McGloin is a career 58% completion guy. Like, do you do you gamble on Tom Savage? I I think I might. Maybe. I never thought that Tom say you know he had that meteoric rise in the uh, in that draft that he was in into the second round or he was taken in for third round. Uh-huh. Yeah, got anyways. He was getting a lot of love near the draft, which was sort of surprising. And maybe Bill O'Brien sees something in him that some of the rest of us don't. But um, I, I mean, he put a coin there. I don't think I don't know that anyone of their ceilings is any higher than Alex Smith's, which is a pretty low one. Uh, Savage started one game for the Texans this year, and it was last week. Uh, 18 for 29, 62 percent completion percentage, 176 yards through the air, no touchdowns, no interceptions. That's the one thing I will say about Savage this year. He's only well, even in his career, he's only thrown one interception. Granted, it's in 84 pass attempts. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It sucks. Uh, if you want to see some fun, turn the page to the NFC. That'll be a much more interesting group. Yeah, I, I'll take the guy who hasn't thrown the interceptions, I guess. You have, uh, in 266 pass attempts, McGloin has thrown 11 interceptions. Oh, And that is a but disproportionately high number. But he was a starter for some very bad teams. He I started mean, six games. bad teams. Started six games, yeah. but you know, won five in that time. Really? Yeah. Yeah. QB wins. Hashtag QB wins. Yes. That's pretty good. I mean, that's not bad. Yeah, uh, one in yeah. five is actually pretty terrible. So you said he won five. No, one and like, five. What? Oh, God. Okay, yeah. That sounds a lot more like what I expected out of Matt McGloin. Yeah. All right. That's That sounds right. I, like, I'll stick with them, though, just because of that line and because of uh, because of Latavius Murray and the other and Richard and, and Washington and all of the different weapons that they have, that he's potentially the guy that could at least maybe. So your question was get hot and run yeah. a team through the table in the playoffs. I don't, I, I mean, I guess Savage would be it because he's the devil. You don't know, like you said, but uh, McGoin's quarterbacking the team. I could more likely see winning a playoff game. I'll say that. Yeah, it's uh, I we're we're getting cheated with the AFC playoffs is what I think we can all agree on. Oh, such a shame, such a shame. One other injury I want to talk about, just because it's kind of interesting what the team's doing in kind of a, a Buffalo Billsian kind of way, uh, is the Bryce Petty injury with the Jets. They're going back to Fitzpatrick now. Fitzpatrick is the epitome of we know what he is. We know uh-huh. what Ryan Fitzpatrick is. Why are they so hesitant to play Hackenberg, who they took relatively early? Is, do they just think he's absolutely not ready and absolutely? Because, you know, Hackenberg, he was fragile mentally at Penn State. So yeah, is this I, a guy who they just don't want to ruin? Yeah, I think, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Cardell, except for the exact opposite in terms of mental fragility. I think that Cardell, as you mentioned, took a team that he had no business quarterbacking and ran them through the last few games at Ohio State, obviously, and – um, just seems kind of a more tougher player to me. Um, mm. And you're right. Like I, I think that Hackenberg, you're you're risking damaging him permanently and actually feeling like that's a real possibility. So, uh, yeah, I mean that's got to be the reason. And I and I also think that the Jets have been careful with with their young quarterbacks. I mean, you think of Petty. It took him them so long to finally roll him out there. And I get that he played in not a pro style offense and all of that, but it took them for until the. It took them so long to finally bench Fitzpatrick. It seemed like it took forever, mm-hmm. and so, um, so I think that may be a common thread in the, in the Bulls' experience. But um, I don't know. I, I, I would roll them out there unless it was really, really risky. But they, they clearly think that it is. One thing worth pointing out with Christian Hackenberg, arguably his best season came as a freshman when no one had any kind of book on him. So maybe he's a guy who benefits from not being seen before. Yeah, 
Maybe. I think that some of that was Bill O'Brien, certainly. A lot of it was and, Bill O'Brien. Uh, I'm just trying to find any positive. Yeah. <laughs> I got you. That's an interesting, that's a creative step there. I'll, I'll give you it. No, a lot of that was Bill O'Brien for sure. Uh, let's let's switch sports <laughs> here and let's talk about this. Let's talk about this Cavs Warriors game on Christmas, Aunt Jukana. So the NBA came out today and said that there were the referees made two mistakes within the final two minutes of the game. One was not assessing an incredibly obvious technical foul to LeBron James for hanging on the rim. I was watching and could not believe that they did not call a technical. You don't get to do that. You get to hang on the rim for a little bit to make sure for that you're safety. not going to fall on anybody. But you don't get to right. pull you if you pull yourself up on the rim, it is an automatic technical foul has always been my interpretation of that rule. And mm-hmm. he did multiple times and it was in Cleveland and it was an exciting play so they just kind of let that go. And then they missed the foul on Durant on the last play of the game where you know RJ clearly oh. pushed off. In, although Brutal. in in the ref's defense they didn't call the travel on Durant, which should have been called for going to the floor with the ball and then rolling and then shooting an awkward one-handed shot at the basket. So they at least <laughs> yeah. gave Durant a shot to make a miracle bucket to win the game. But how does this – is this just – they're in Cleveland. This is a giant game. The crowd's going nuts. You know, How much of that played a part in the ref's non-calls here? Yeah, I mean, it plays a huge role. I, I actually – in some cases, I don't mind them deferring to the game flow and not trying to take over the game. But you're right, when it's so cut and dried, like the pulling up above the rim like with LeBron, I think that's that's a tough one to, to let go. But, uh, you know, it's the flow of the game, and it's the NBA, and the this two-minute review thing is sort of, I don't know if it's good or bad, but at least they're admitting yeah. their fault after the fact where other leagues would just, blindly defend their officials so um and you know a lot of the players even Dwayne Wade came out and said that he doesn't even like that you know like mm-hmm. the two minute those if all two minute periods are created basically equal then you know if we go down that road of checking every single call in a game that's a really slippery and unfortunate slope to be going down so um yeah you know I like you said they, they I mean they went back they said those were all misses and that's that's going to dock the refs. But I also think that there's something to be said about refs that let the players play to some extent, as long as it's not, you know, just an overt violation. I agree completely with what you're saying, but we're talking about two overt violations. Yeah. No, I, and the good thing is that some of them sort of balanced out. I mean, I think that still Cleveland probably got the benefit there, but uh, how, yes, yeah. they clearly get the benefit by two yeah. non calls in their favor. As opposed well, the to zero Durant, in the well, the, the Durant, Durant one was a direct byproduct of one of their non-calls. Yeah, yeah, probably. So, no, not probably. He wouldn't have fallen to the ground if Richard Jefferson wouldn't have pushed him. Oh, I thought you meant the fact they didn't call that was a direct result of them missing a call for, like uh, it, it being a makeup miss. I mean, you know? maybe, but, yeah, sure. but maybe, but that doesn't ever that doesn't happen. That doesn't come into play if not for the. The clear-cut non-call. I just couldn't. I couldn't believe it. I hate the Cavs so much. I hate the Cavs with a burning passion. And I hate LeBron the most. So, Yeah, I I understand it. LeBron's got his own set of rules. The the best players in the league do, although Durant should probably fall under that class too. So it's clearly some home cook in there. But, you know, as long as it's not a playoff game or a game that maybe defines who gets home court and who doesn't, it's – it's hard for me to get too worked up about it because it's the NBA and this stuff happens. I just don't like seeing that smug jackass succeed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I get that. I, I, I've i evolved from hating him with an undying passion to unfor- just begrudgingly respecting how amazing he is and how much of a complete freak he is. Don't, don't get it wrong. I have nothing but the utmost of admiration and respect for the man's talent. I just think he's, I think, I think he's that, like that slutty high school girl who wants everybody to think she's this goody two shoes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Like, like you, what he is and I his public perception are two very the, different things. Yeah. I, you know, I, one thing I'll say about the NBA and about LeBron, I think LeBron fits this pretty neatly, is these guys 
I feel like sometimes we grasp at straws for our dislike for NBA players. Like mm. in general, I think it's like a very league's in a really great place yeah, as definitely. far as the personalities. And we're not talking about wife beaters or rapists really, mm. or like drunk oh. drivers even. I mean, it's a league that by and large has a lot of good people. And mm. realizing that made me hate him less because my biggest problem with LeBron is just that he's, seems to be kind of an attention grabber and so uh that uh, if that's like the biggest fault with the best player in the league you're in a very good place and i don't know i i like i think it's especially i think watching kobe made me realize this more and more towards the end of last season was that greatness is so i mean it's not it's just very rare to see a player that generational mm-hmm. and I mean, that's the definition of the word, I guess. But it's like, <laughs> he's so, just so, so good when he turns it on. And it's like, and, he, and you know, I, I found myself wishing that I had appreciated Kobe more when he was younger rather than just hating every single time I watched him do anything ever. So, um, and I, and Kobe was actually like a legitimately somewhat bad dude at times. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that I, makes I, me yeah. hate LeBron laugh. You know, LeBron has some of those same things, though. You have the the issues with infidelity with in terms of he's this, like, family guy and he loves his kids and all this. And then, you know, he's trying to steal Jordan Poyer's model girlfriend or at least have sex with Jordan Poyer's model, model girlfriend. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. You know, yeah. oh, well, he, he is very, very good at public perception. Yes, agreed. Much in the same way Tiger was before. Yeah, that's very true. He became not good. Yeah, went in a very <laughs> strong opposite direction there for Tiger Woods. <laughs> and he like, just lost his mojo. That's one of the most interesting things about all of that is almost immediately upon this cheating scandal for Tiger Woods coming out, did he fall from grace as a golfer? Yeah. No, I think it's such a mental – it's such a state of mind, like a – uh, dominant he controlled everything about the sport and completely owned everybody mentally mm. and I, I do agree that some of that swagger was gone from his game after that and he and that was the beginning of the hot take era too I feel like when like Skip Bayless would come on and say oh Tiger's never won like a close tournament you know he's never come back to win on Sunday or whatever bullshit yeah. sorry bull yeah, yeah that I, he I, would uh well, like, there's you that explicit I'm... rating. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, just out. I agree. No, you're right. Let's uh, let's switch over to yet another sport and talk about something that happened, that we've all been waiting for to happen for quite some time, mind you, um, with the, the Cleveland Indians signing Edwin Encarnacion. How big a deal is this for the Indians, especially when you consider that they also get Michael Brantley back next year, who's that's like signing another major free agent. Yeah. Oh, it's it's huge because it's it's such an arms race between the Red Sox and the Indians and to a lesser extent the Astros, maybe not even a lesser extent. But the Indians completely control the AL Central, the White Sox totally tanking and the Tigers seemingly getting ready to tank and the Royals semi tanking and um and the Indians have a clearer path to their division than the Red Sox do. Um but by signing Edwin, you're right, adding uh Brantley back at whatever form he is, and I wouldn't expect him to be 100% by any means, but mm. if nothing else, just having him and the threat of him in the middle of that lineup and then bringing back Carrasco and Salazar, who barely played any role in the playoff run, and then you still have you have Andrew Miller for a full year now, and you have a pretty good farm system that's likely to bring up top prospect Bradley Zimmer at some mm. point, um, and probably he's your starting center fielder in the playoffs if they ultimately make it. Um, that's a dangerous team, and I think it's one that can put itself right up there next to uh, the Red Sox, especially when you think of the the growth that you can expect out of guys like Francisco Lindor and and some of the other young players, uh, Tyler Naquin and um, you know Trevor Bauer and Josh Tomlin, maybe even. Um, it's a it's a very it's going to be a very interesting battle between those two teams, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Indians win the most games in, in all of baseball with this signing. This is huge. This is exactly what they needed. And it's a real departure for them as far as doing something, like making a big splash like this. Um, and it wasn't even that big of a splash, which is, I think, maybe the most fascinating part yeah. about the whole thing. Yeah, we've expected it for so long. We was So 
we the, when when Chris Sale was traded, you sent a very lengthy article in that day <laughs> about potential trade destinations for Chris Sale. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, one of our columnists and one of your friends, Daniel Bauer, posted uh, posted an article about the Red Sox, uh, the Indians. I mean, going after Encarnacion. And my response to him in our in an email exchange was, "I just hope." this signing doesn't happen before I can get this article up. Cause I was fully, <laughs> fully expecting that to happen. You know, it took a couple more weeks than we thought it would, but this was just such a foregone yeah. conclusion for so long that you're right. It, it didn't seem like this big splash that it really was. Right. And I mean, and when I say big splash, too, that part of that is because it was expected and imminent. But the other part is that it just wasn't for that much money, which I think surprisingly true. Yeah. Hand in hand. Yeah. So that, I think to that end, there, that's, that's that lent itself to why the Indians were even involved because even though it made a lot of sense and it was talked about a lot, it's still just hard to imagine the Indians making that kind of splash. And because they made that run as Dan wrote about um, that, that playoff run that brought in so much money for the franchise that they weren't seeing in previous years um, that helped justify the expenditure. And now you couple that with all the guys we were just talking about and it makes it look like, the investment is one that should pay off hand over fist for the duration of that contract, or at least the first two years of it, where you can expect more home games in Cleveland and more mm-hmm. money for the team. And, and for a small market team, that is, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, we don't talk about that with the Yankees and Red Sox and Cubs, but that's an enormous, enormous factor for a team like Cleveland that doesn't have its own network or, or you know, have that huge following that some of these other teams have. No, absolutely true. There's a, there's an article on MLB.com today, and this is the last thing I want to talk about before we go. An article about eight trades that make sense. Ancho, I'm going to read these trades out to you, and I want you to tell me which side says no to it and for what reasons. Okay. First trade is a Yankees-Royals trade that would send left-handed pitcher Danny Duffy to the Yankees for the Yankees' number three prospect, Jorge Mateo, and their number 17 prospect, Ian Clarkin. Uh, I think the Royals say no to that. Um, Mateo is—he was their number one prospect before they had that reliever fire sale last year, and yeah. now I believe he's number four or five on their list. So maybe I'm underrating him a little bit. But Danny Duffy, even though he's only had one really good year, he had one really good year. Mm. So I think that um, I think that the Royals would be better served to hold out because uh, I'm not exactly sure the terms of this contract, but I think they can do better than Mateo and certainly with a lottery ticket like that. I think I just, you look at what the Sox are looking for for Quintana and some of these other teams are looking for. I, I think that the, the Royals can do better for Duffy. Yeah. I'm looking in terms of the contract and I don't see an extension sign. So is he still, is he still an ARB guy? It's possible. I mean, he's, he was a young, he was a reliever for two years. So I would guess that he's through 2019 if I had to guess. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and when you say a good year, you're talking about a heck of a year. And it would be a very Yankees kind of move to pick up a 28-year-old who was just hitting his stride and had a 3.51 <laughs> ERA last year. Yeah, and I mean, that 3.51 ERA is probably a little bit skewed by the fact that he really came on right around the all-star break or maybe just slightly before. And his, his second half, yeah, it was really, really good, and he's established himself as the best pitcher on that team. So um, I think that Duffy – and the, look, the Yankees need pitching. I mentioned mm-hmm. this in my article about Quintana. I, they need pitching, and, and it doesn't make sense that they're not active in the starting pitcher market, and I think they are. They, they need to be because it just doesn't follow logically based on who they have in their lineup and who they have in their bullpen to stick with the rotation that they currently have. So it makes sense that they'd go after Duffy. I just think that they would need to give up more than just Mateo. And it also makes sense to for them to trade Mateo because he's a guy who is blocked by, you know, Didi Gregorius and Glebar Torres at this point. Right. Right. And but I mean you make that move and now you're locking yourself into Torres, which might preclude you from trading for a guy like Quintana or Archer or even, you know, the likes of Drew Smiley or mm-hmm. some of the other names that we've heard potentially being on the market, which I think is I mean, it depends what you want to do, but I don't think that it doesn't sound like Duffy's got that kind of control that some of these other guys do that the Yankees can afford to get. Yeah. All right. This next one near and dear to your heart, Mr. Kana. Oh, yeah. Let's go. The Chicago White Sox 
trade pitcher Jose Quintana to the Pittsburgh Pirates for the Pirates' number two prospect, Austin Rivers, number 11 prospect, Clay Holmes. Austin Rivers would be interesting, though. Yeah, Clay Meadows. Uh, Austin Meadows. Could sorry. use a three-point specialist. <laughs> <laughs> Just Austin Rivers on the brain for some reason. That's unfortunate. Yes, you're wow. seek mental help immediately. Uh, yes, number two prospect, Austin Meadows, center fielder. Uh, right-handed pitcher, number 11 prospect, Clay Holmes, and infielder, outfielder, Adam Frazier. Uh, interesting. I think the White Sox could potentially say no to that, though, because although Austin Meadows appears to be untouchable by the Pirates, and by all accounts, he'll be their number one prospect when some of those lists get refreshed here yeah. in the next few months. Um, and it does seem like the Pirates are trying to carve out a role for Meadows by dealing McCutcheon. Um I think the Sox can get more than one big piece. And, I mean, you look at what still got them, which was Moncada and Kopik and, and Basabe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the Sox can do better than Josh Meadows, who's, who's not as good as Moncada. Yeah, and again, it's worth pointing out, as you just alluded to, that these are amended midseason uh, rankings lists. So they will be changing significantly when the, you know, the, the spring training lists come out in a couple of months. Right. I Next. think I do think I, I wrote that article. I think that um, I think the Pirates are the likeliest destination for Quintana. I don't think that Meadows will be a part of it, but I think you'll see Tyler Glasnow and possibly Josh Bell and others be a part of that. You just think Meadows is untouchable, or you know, if you get Meadows, yeah, if you get Meadows, you get more bargain basement guys to fill out that deal. Exactly. It's like. Like the White Sox could have either gotten Moncada and Kopik, or they could have gotten like Rafael Devers and you know a better prospect, like a number mm-hmm. three guy that yeah. they have. So I think that that's that's sort of your options, and and I do think that Meadows is also in touch. But it's kind of like it, on both ends, it doesn't make a lot of sense. All right, Dodgers Pirates, Pirates trade outfielder Andrew McCutcheon and infielder outfielder Josh Harrison to the Dodgers for outfielder Yasel Puig. Isil Puig, uh, number two prospect, Jose De Leon, and number three prospect, Alex Verdugo. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Puig is Puig is a really interesting factor in this whole thing because it mm-hmm. seems like the Dodgers are trying to jam him in everywhere they can because yes. he's such a cancer. Um, I, I think Verdugo and De Leon would be a nice return. I, that's, a, that's a pretty fair deal, all things considered. I almost think that the Pirates would just say no to Puig, honestly. I think that they would just say, we'll, we'll take a different kind of outfield prospect in that. But um, very interesting move because that still enables them to potentially deal Meadows in that scenario. Um, it does sound like the Dodgers are eager to, not eager, but are willing to deal De Leon, um, whether it be for Brian Dozier or somebody else. If it's McCutcheon, that makes sense too. Um, Verdugo makes sense. There's just not a ton of room for him at the big league level for the Dodgers. So, I, that that might be the most realistic one you've mentioned so far. Do we think that the UCL Puig, um, the trade to the Brewers is dead at this point for Ryan Braun? Yeah, it seems that way. Um, if I'm the Brewers, that's the kind of risk I'd be willing to take. Agreed. Just because I'm not sure what you ever get for Ryan Braun. And say you don't want Puig because he doesn't fit your either your clubhouse or your time frame or whatever. If nothing else, he's a great investment because – he, I mean, I don't see any scenario where Braun is worth more than Puig down the line. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's possible, but it seems like most teams have cast their lot as far as just not being interested in Ryan Braun. So it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that trade makes sense for both sides, but it, it doesn't. It does seem to be kind of dead. But for the Brewers, it makes sense as an investment to then flip Puig down the line. Sure. All right, now we've got sort of a, a variation on the deals we saw above, a three-team trade between the Pirates, White Sox, and Dodgers. In this trade, the Dodgers get McCutcheon, the Pirates get Jose Quintana, and the White Sox add two more prospects from both organizations. They would be getting Jose De Leon, infielder Willie Calhoun from the Dodgers, and uh, Josh Bell and Elias Diaz from the Pirates. Hmm. It would be uh, it was De Leon and Calhoun. You said from the De, Dodgers. De Leon, yeah, they get De Leon, Calhoun, Josh Bell, and Diaz. Hmm. So Boy, a, a giant hall of prospects. Be, yeah. 
Yeah, that um, that's an interesting one. Uh, it seems like that. I mean, the Dodgers would be giving up less than in the straight up McCutcheon deal mm-hmm. that you mentioned earlier. So, um, because you'd be the deal you mentioned earlier, it was just going to be De Leon and Verdugo and others for McCutcheon straight up. It sounded like so. Calhoun is worse than Verdugo, and uh, yeah, I mean that is an interesting move. I think if he threw Verdugo, and it would be perfect for all parties uh, for the Pirates. Giving up just Bell, basically, Elias Diaz, the catcher for Quintana would be a huge gap for them. Oh, I guess they'd be giving up the catcher too. Yeah, yeah. But that would be perfect because they're carving out room for um, for Meadows to start at, in the outfield. Um, that's a pretty interesting one. I, I kind of like that one. That one might have legs. And this does seem like it's in line with the giant prospect hauls that the White Sox have been getting. You know, obviously we said these these rankings list will be amended, but you're getting a number two and a number four prospect from one team and a number three and a number nine prospect from another team. So you're adding at least three guys who are probably going to be in your top eight, top nine prospects when it's all said and done. Yeah, and you, you mentioned this last week. The the White Sox would then be focusing more on bats. I mean, De Leon's still maybe the headline of that group, but mm. that's a nice that's a nice haul. And Bell is good. If you get Verdugo instead of Calhoun, that's really good. And that would seem to be in line with what the Dodgers should give up for McCutcheon. Um, I think a lot of this, too, is contingent on just the Dodgers not getting Dozier, though, which by all accounts, that's the fit, Dozier to the Dodgers, and the Dodgers giving up De Leon and probably Verdugo. So that would assume, again, Dozier's not going there, but that I like that fit. You're right, and, and prospect-wise, it makes sense. All right, the Detroit Tigers and the San Francisco Giants. The uh, J.D. Martinez goes to the Giants for right-handed pitcher Hunter Strickland. So, yeah, that I mean, it sounds like the Tigers are trying to deal J.D. Martinez because his contract's up, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's a lot of money, and you don't want to lose him for nothing, and it just seems like Cleveland's going to run away with this division. Um, not sure that Hunter Strickland is worth Martinez straight up, but so I think if I'm – I mean, for one year though, yeah. I think if I'm the if I'm the Tigers, I probably would look for a little bit more. But if I'm the Giants, this is that'd be a boon. They they could use a middle of the order bat like J.D. Martinez and a, and a pretty decent out, defensive outfielder. All right, here's a guy who's been rumored to uh, be on the block and being shopped pretty aggressively. The trade between the Cardinals and the Twins. Brian Dozier goes to the Cardinals for second baseman Colton Wong. Uh, number two prospect Luke Weaver and number eighteen prospect Austin Gomber. Gomber, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think that the Twins would be looking for more. I first of all, Colton Wong. Uh, that's a lot of baggage mm. with the whole possible domestic abuse situation, and I just was it domestic abuse? He got in trouble recently. It might have been a DUI. There was some trouble that Colton Long was having, and he's just his game hasn't really translated as well as I think a lot of Cardinals fans were hoping that it would. Yeah. Luke Weaver to me is is um and I don't know not a super impressive prospect, and uh and I think that they could do better with a De Leon and Verdugo type package, or else De Leon and maybe even Willie Calhoun that would be a better option for the. Twins in that scenario, so I'm going to say the Twins probably would be the ones to say no on that deal. Yeah, that's your classic highly ranked prospect from a bad system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're when you mentioned like, oh, the number two and four prospects from whatever system. Well, yeah. you know, it it obviously depends on what you have. I mean, the Dodgers have like six of the top hundred, so it's very different. Like, I'll take the five and six guys from that system over the one and two guys in the giant system, for example. Sure. Giants, angels, horrible form systems. Yeah. And it's really handicapping the giants right now because they know what they need. They need a big bat and they just, they just don't have the horses in the system to get a deal like that done. And it's been, I think it's really hamstrung them. And, and that's why they're making all these huge spends. I mean, paying so much to Mark Melanson when they could have maybe traded for someone's just slightly worse um, if they had the prospects, they just don't have them right now, and and I think that's a real concern for them because their their pitchers are pretty they're getting up there in age. There's going to be a time here in the near future where the Giants 
cupboard is pretty bare and their their team is aging, which is a, a very daunting prospect. Yeah. All right, let's go back to the White Sox and a deal with the well, I think we've seen this would have seen this before. Um the Washington Nationals. The the White Sox trade pitcher David Robertson to the Nationals for their number eleven prospect, catcher Pedro Severino. Yeah, I've seen this one. The White Sox badly need a catcher in their system, preferably one that can play almost immediately, someone to control all these young, talented pitchers that we've talked about the last few weeks. I, I don't think Severino's enough. I mean, he's like their number 18 guy, and it's not a great system after the Sox pillaged it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that they'll do much better than that for Robertson. If nothing else, Robertson becomes – a sweetener and a Quintana deal or an Abreu deal or a Frazier deal that maybe gets them the guy that they otherwise wouldn't get. And when you look at the price of these closers and relievers, you know, I think you could easily argue that Robertson's worth much more than a middling catcher prospect. So, uh, yeah, I don't see, I don't see the White Sox agreeing to that. If they, if they had, if that was enough, they probably would have already done that. But do you see Zach Collins as a DH? Because I mean, he's in the system at this point. Yeah, he's I it's he's got a very important bat to the system right now. I don't see them counting on him as a catcher. It just doesn't seem to be a a real smart move and he's kind of he only caught like half the time at Miami. I think that you'll see Zach Collins ultimately go to first base or DH. Athletic kid, but a really his stick is going to be very important to their middle of the lineup down the line. So, um I don't see him as a long-term catcher now. All right, last trade. Oh boy. This oh boy, uh, all right. Well, the Brewers and the Red Sox, the uh, the Brewers give up third baseman Hernan Perez and get catcher Blake Swihart and left-handed pitcher Henry Owens. Wow, uh, that seems like an overpay yeah, to me, uh, is what I'm saying. I think so. Hernan Perez is is a big time prospect, but that uh, seems like a lot. I, I know that the Red Sox are. I don't think the Red Sox are that down on Blake Swire because I think he would have been a part of the White Sox deal had they been overly down on him because the White Sox love him and allegedly, and they just, you know, you could easily have jammed him into that deal. So I think the Red Sox haven't given been up on him. And then you include Henry Owens with him. That's uh yeah. I mean, I just don't see how that really helps the Red Sox or makes any sense whatsoever. <laughs> kind of wish yeah. we wouldn't have ended with that one, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, let's go back to the three-way trade. That was a good one. Yeah, it's kind of a, a whimper rather than a bang here to, to end the show, but that's all right. Uh, we have reached... That's our tagline. Yes, that's our tagline. I don't know that that's how we want to brand the show, but... Kind of a whimper rather than a bang. Uh, so that's the Deepest Thoughts podcast for this week. I'm Chris Forwardell. He's on Shukana. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.